This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. One of the downsides of living in an increasingly toxic culture is the stress it produces for parents who want their children to grow up to love the Lord and to have good character and to make good choices in life. And our daughters have some unique pressures put upon them that are important for us to understand. Is it possible to raise a daughter who is truly happy, healthy, and safe? We're going to tackle that today with Dr. Meg Meeker, who has spent more than 30 years as a practicing pediatrician. She serves on the advisory board of the Medical Institute and is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and is also an associate professor of medicine at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and is here today to talk about her latest book, Raising a Strong Daughter in a Toxic Culture, 11 Steps to Keep Her Happy, Healthy, and Safe. And Meg, so great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Actually, I'm losing my voice. I had a cold, but it's great to be with you, Janet. Oh, my goodness. Well, we'll try not to overdo the voice thing. I well relate those days when you can't really talk and you have to be on the radio. I totally understand. Yes. Yeah. What is your overall perspective on how girls today are dealing with this toxic culture? What are some of the most concerning kinds of pressures that you think daughters are facing? You know, that's a great question, and I actually ask a lot of the girls in my practice routinely, um, you know, what are the two biggest struggles that you have and they always say being thin enough and pretty enough and then the other one is uh, you know I just don't know what to do about sexual activity Hmm. you know I everybody does it in high school so what do I do and then I back them up and we have a talk about you know thinness and dieting and then of course we, we talk about you know sexual activity and so but beyond that there's so much and what I've noticed is over the past five or eight years Parents have gotten more, oh, nervous and um, about, you know, what do I say? There's so much going on. What about social media and what about, you know, transgender stuff? And what about you know, when do I give my daughter a cell phone? What if she's hmm. bullied? So the list keeps getting longer. And I think that girls really don't know how to handle it, A, because they're a lot younger than we think, hmm. and B, Many parents don't know how to handle it, and that's why I wrote my book. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I've got three daughters of my own, so I'm dealing with this on a regular basis, some of these things that girls have to struggle with in the culture and the questions that they come up with. And I think that's interesting, the two issues that you just mentioned, that girls are concerned about the way they look. I mean, that's no surprise. And what they should do as far as sex. And, you know, that yeah. that really, both of those things, if you think about it, are outside pressures mainly, because why, yeah. why in the world would you wonder whether or not you're skinny enough unless you were comparing yourself to somebody else? Yes, exactly. Well, in fairness to a lot of kids, there are a whole lot of moms who all they talk about is losing that last 10 pounds True. from having the baby. True. Oh, I got to be on a diet. I got to be. And that's why I talked to moms in that one chapter about you know, modeled her what strength is all about. But you're absolutely right. The culture, television, movies, um, music, social media um, is really what puts the pressure on girls to feel like they should be sexually active. And then I tell them, 
I know you feel like that, but let me tell you the reality. More than half of your, the kids in your class are not sexually active, but they're not talking. Right. The ones who are, are the ones talking. So their perception is, is a little um, warped, if you will. Um, the thinness thing, however, is um, very pervasive because, you know, look at the models and the actresses and everybody, and girls feel a real pressure to, to get skinny, and many can, and they diet, but many can't, and so they overeat in response to that anxiety. So, you know, it's a real problem. Well, it is, and it, it kind of speaks to a fundamental issue of identity, doesn't it? That if you are a confident young woman, if you have a really balanced view of what it means to be healthy, then you wouldn't struggle probably quite as much as somebody who was insecure or who really felt that peer pressure more intensely. But what is a mother to do about it, or a father? Yeah, that's a great question. I wrote a chapter called Answer Her Four Most Important Questions. And answering the deeper questions, parents don't think about it. I don't even know if I thought about it with, with my daughters growing up. Our focus as parents tends to be, I want my daughter to be successful. So what should I sign her up for? <laughs> um, do I need to get a tutor so she gets straight A's? What kids? But that doesn't help a daughter. That helps her learn what she's good at but didn't, doesn't teach her who she is. Right. What teaches her who she is is understanding she's, she was created, she's not an accident, she's put here by purpose. She has the stamp of God's image on her, and she needs to know where she came from. She needs to know why she has significance. Do I, am I valuable to you, Mom and Dad, because I play the piano well or because I'm a good swimmer? Um, and they, they feel like they're valuable because of that, because that's what we as parents do. You know, we get them to perform well, so they'll go on to be more successful. But to teach them that whether they can perform well at anything and whether they sit in the closet the rest of their life, they are in, have inestimable value, not just to us, but to God. Right. And then they need to know, is there a moral standard? These are, these are four points that Ravi Zacharias outlines for adults. They really apply to kids as well. Is there good and evil? Are there rules to life, mom and dad? Yes. And then finally, where am I going? You know, I'm, I'm 10 now or I'm 17 now, but what should I be when I'm 35? What's the path I should be on? And then, of course, ultimately what happens when I die. And I find that if we really talk to our kids about things and give them roots in these things, they're much more capable of being resilient to a lot of the negative influences coming at them. Right. Well, and, and what about the issue of modeling that at home? If you have a mom who's saying, well, I, I did all of these things you shouldn't be doing, but you don't go do them. I mean, what about that important role model angle to parenting? Certainly there will be parents who did things that for, for which they later repented and they changed their lives, and that's one thing. But kids are very judgmental, can be very judgmental of their parents. What, what about the parent who says, I want to teach right and wrong, but I didn't really live it out myself, and do I have the moral authority to assert that to my child? I recommend that parents not tell their kids what mistakes they made, and here's why. Because your child will look at you and go, okay, mom, you did X, Y, and Z in high school and college, but you're okay, Yes. so I can do it too. Yes. It's one of the biggest mistakes parents make, um, because kids look up to their parents. And so the fact that their parent did it 
um, makes it san- sanctions it. And, but even more, if their parent did it and is okay today, why not? So don't do that. And also, parents ask me this all this time. I was so wild in high school with girls or guys. Do I need to tell my kids about what I did? And I said, well, A, they don't want to hear it. Right. <laughs> and B, you know, it's really about them. It's not about you. Yeah. Kids care more about what they should do, not what you did. Great. You're interested in telling them, and maybe you're telling them because you feel guilty, but don't do that. Kids are kids. Keep your life separate. Tell them when you're, they're 35, but not when they're 17. I think that's great advice. That is great advice because don't you think this kind of plays into the whole thing where parents want to be buddies with their kids? Hey, you should hear what I did back when I was your age. I mean, they don't want to hear that. They want you to be on a different plane than they are. We need a generation gap, Janet. I don't know if you remember way back, we we always said, we got to close a generation gap. You know, absolutely. And I understand. I have three daughters as well. They're grown. And I understand wanting to be close to your daughters and share things. And you can do that. However, mothers should never come down to their daughter's level and and, and and insert themselves into their daughter's peer group yes. because that makes the daughter feel like mom is competition. Mothers need to wear mom jeans, and <laughs> here's why. <laughs> Even though you can fit in your daughter's clothes, yeah. let her have her day. Good. This is her time to look great, her time to get the attention. Don't pull that attention away from her and don't compete with her. Oh, that's such good advice. I got to talk to you more about this, but we do need to pause for a quick break. Dr. Meg Meeker is with us. Raising a Strong Daughter in a Toxic Culture is her book. We'll come right back on Janet Mefford today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, the membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ. I've seen people 
being changed by reading the scripture, giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Dr. Meg Meeker is my guest. Her book, so great, Raising a Strong Daughter in a Toxic Culture, talking about some of these steps to keep your daughter happy, healthy, and safe. You really nailed it, I think, Meg, before the break. I was just high-fiving you uh, electronically when you were saying this, that there are mothers who, unfortunately, will try to compete with their daughters to be young and skinny and hip and all the rest, and you're saying they're needs to be this generation gap. In fact, you point out in your book the importance of mom. One of the main things that is important about a mom is mom as mentor. You can't really be a mentor when you're competing with your daughter, can you? No. And you can't be a mentor if you're the same age or you act the same age or, as I said, you become one of the girls. Right. Because in order for a daughter to be mentored by you, she has to be able to look up to you perceive you as smarter, perceive you as more trustworthy, more savvy, um, and she has to respect you. And what mothers, mothers don't realize when they come down to their daughter's le- uh, level is that they're pushing all of that away, and a daughter doesn't want you to do that. Yes, she wants you to know who her friends are, and she wants you to talk openly about her with things, but... She doesn't want you to cross boundaries that a lot of mothers do. The reason mothers do it, a lot of good mothers do it, with, with the best intentions, the best heart, is because they're afraid if they set boundaries between themselves and their daughters, daughters are going to emotionally push away and not talk to them. And that's not true. The opposite is true. And, um, but, but daughters need to have that distance um, because they do. Daughters do feel kind of creepy when their moms are sort of acting like them. Yeah. I see this a lot with Facebook. Yes, and um, yes. And so, you know, mothers interjecting things on their kids' pages, don't do that. You know, you need to know what's on there. You need to monitor what your daughters are doing. But, but set some boundaries and don't get in between your daughter and her friends. That's just not a great place to be. No, that's that's such good advice. What about dad? Dad obviously plays a very important role in his daughter's life in different ways, though, right? What, what would you advise yeah. fathers to do in order to be good role models and, and good fathers and protectors of their daughters? Yeah, the role of a mother, what a mother brings to a daughter, what a father brings to a daughter are very different. And it's important to recognize and realize the differences. One isn't better than the other or, or worse. They're just different. Fathers bring to their daughters an authority that mom probably doesn't have. And here's why. And I know that's going to make some people shudder. Girls believe that mom is always there. She has to say nice things. She can't go away. And that's why they can be daughters can be so mean to us hmm. because because we're not going anywhere dads on the other hand have the option to love them they perceive hmm. um, and so if mom says for instance boy you know you were so patient with your sister that's just really great 
in your head, the daughter will go, yeah, 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 you're my mom. I mean, you always have to say that kind of stuff. And can you hear yourself saying that to your mother? But when a dad comes along and goes, wow, you were really patient with your sister. I'm really proud of you. Boom. She feels like the most patient person in the entire world. So when your dad says you're good at something or your dad compliments you or your dad says that you can, it's a done deal. That's the power of a, a dad and a daughter's life. Studies show this all over the place that girls who have a dad, not even a great dad, less likely to be depressed, anxious, get into sex, drugs, and alcohol, more likely to finish school, go on to college and grad school. So dad gives a daughter a sense of um, significance that feels very different than significance she gets from her mom. She really believes mom has to be there. Well, mom's a safe person. <laughs> and, and dad is the one who can choose to love her or not. Now, you won't read about this in any books, but I see this over and over and over with kids in my practice. That is so fascinating. To what do you attribute that? Is it because you gave birth to me, you're not going anywhere? Is it mainly that that, that makes the distinction in a daughter's mind between mom and dad that a compliment mom get, may give me sounds different than if dad said it? I think so. And, 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 and again, some, you know, it might be the reverse in some households, though I, I kind of doubt it. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that mom did birth the child or if she didn't and the child's adopted, she was the primary caregiver in those early months and that year. Yes. So the attachment she formed with the daughter is different from the attachment dad um, formed with the daughter. Moms tend to feed the babies more, hold the babies more, rock the babies more, talk to the babies more. Dads are in and out, um, and, but, but we are just usually the primary caregivers. So I really think it all kind of goes back to that is that there's a bond that a mother has with a daughter that is different than the bond she has with her, her dad. Not better or not worse, but just very different. Well, and, and you're right about that, and I think that's important for us to understand when we're you know, looking at the overall dynamic in the family. But what do you do about things like the important choices that your daughter will make in life? Clearly, you know, it's not always as easy as we think it might be in theory. <laughs> oh, and my daughter oh, no. gets to the point of you know, not wanting to eat because she wants to be more thin. I'll just deal with it. And then you deal with it in real life, and it feels a lot different. But what, you know, what sort of guidance can you give? Clearly, at different ages, you'll take different approaches. But for example, you have a high school daughter who is getting involved with the wrong crowd. She's being pulled in and feeling that peer pressure of kids who aren't so good for her. And you're hoping and praying she'll grow out of it. But in the interim, what do you do? Yeah. Well, the one thing you don't do is sort of say, why in the world are you hanging out with those rotten kids? Don't you, don't you understand it's going to make you rotten too? Yeah. That's what you want to say, yeah. right? But what you do is stand back a little bit, always let your daughter know you are the go-to person for any advice about anything. So you watch carefully what's going on. You watch her demeanor, her affect, her behavior. And if you see that she's beginning to go downhill or act like these people, then you need to say, honey, you know what? I've noticed that you're starting to change. Your dress is changing, your attitude. What do you think is going on? You know, what's going on at school? So you ask your daughter non-threatening questions, and you listen to her answers, and you follow up them up with probing questions that lead her to make her own conclusion, which 
which you can lead them to, to make your conclusion too. So in other words, you don't act as a threatening um, gavel that's going to come down on her head, but you watch and you, you ask her why she's doing this, so on and so forth. If, she, if things continue to get worse and then she gets into drugs and then she starts drinking, you need to pull her out of the group. And I know that sounds, um, I know that sounds really harsh, but we become who we become like the people that we hang around. Yes. And that's why I hang around a lot of married people because I want to have a good marriage. You probably do too, Janet. Yeah. I yeah. mean, whatever you want to be, you find those people and you hang around them. So I've even, you know, encouraged some parents to sw- take their daughters to a different school. Mm. They say, well, I don't want to do it. I said, but you know, this is your daughter. This is her life. Right. And at 15, 16, if she's gone this far out and she's on drugs and she's skipping school and she's having sex with guys who are 18, um, this is time for mom and dad to intervene. Yep. Um, first of all, if she's having sex with an 18-year-old, dad should show up at his house. For sure. That, I, that's how what I believe. For sure. You know, because dad's saying, well, it's my daughter. She makes choices. No, Mm-mm. it doesn't matter. She needs you to protect her. So, so that's what I recommend. So at first... When kids are starting to dabble with the wrong crowd, you ask questions, you watch, you probe, you talk, and you talk, and you talk. And then if you see her pulling away, great. Um, Encourage friendships with healthy friends. And incidentally, girls, as they go through junior high and high school, they really only need one good girlfriend. Mm -hmm. You, You don't really want them to be in a pack where they're friends with eight people. Right. Um, and, and don't have your kids minister to people. I mean, they're not to evangelize their friends. They're not ready. So, so one good friend that can link arms with them and say, you know what, we want to go in this direction, not that direction, that will make all the difference in a girl's life. Because when you try to help them be good friends with four or five kids, usually doesn't work. And a lot of them end up kind of falling apart. Very true. Oh, yeah. I, I remember the girl gangs. It was never, it never went well because you'd always never pair. Never goes pair, well. No, you pair off and then you turn on the other one and then you switch friends the next day and they turn on you. And I mean, it's just yeah. awful. It's awful. It's <laughs> awful. And then the bully tries to pull your best friend away from you. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a mess. It is a so, mess. Yeah, I, I wrote a whole thing on friendships in there and helping our girls navigate those. Yeah, we're letting men in on our little secret. We all know women are like that to some extent. Yes. <laughs> At yes. different stages yes. of life. Yes, yes. Yes, we are. That's right. Yeah, it, mothers are very competitive, and I think with one another, they'd never say that. You know, if your child's a good soccer player, my my child's going to be better. Uh, so, yes. but it all starts when we're when we're young. We just want to compete with with other women for their stuff and attention. Yeah, it never ends. I tell my daughters it starts with when you're young, who has a boyfriend and who has the best boyfriend. And then you go all the way through life and you have different situations and you get to the end of life. Who has the most grandkids? Who has the best grandkids? It just never ends. Never ends. Yeah, it's kind of the way way it goes. You know, you have so much good advice in this book, Meg. I hope people will read it and take it to heart. But, you know, most importantly, I know we have to nurture our daughter's faith. Can you give a couple quick tips in that regard? Absolutely. Bring your your own faith alive in your home. Don't just talk about behaviors your kids should follow. Um, that good that Christian girls do this and not this, and they're not to have sex because that's not what they do because God doesn't want them to. Show them who the person of Christ is. Good. Talk about him. Talk about how he answered your prayer that day. Serve other people. 
in a way you believe Christ would do it and bring your kids to do it with you. Don't say this is what we're supposed to do. Just go do it. That's so good. Oh, man, great. Dr. Meg Meeker, Raising a Strong Daughter in a Toxic Culture, her great book. And so good to have you here, Meg. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Take care. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Have you ever been asked to lead a small group at your church? What was your reaction? Were you 100% confident you could do it? Or did you feel a little inadequate to the task? Well, I'd say it's probably the case that most Christians who've been asked to lead a small group wonder if they are up to the task. But there is some really good guidance out there. And so we're going to talk about it today with Ryan Lacosmo. He is lead pastor of Real Hope Community Church in the Houston area and is out with a book that aims to offer some practical help. It is called Small Groups Made Easy. And Ryan, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you. Well, you you refer to small groups as classic Christianity, which I think is really interesting. How is that the case? Well, it's the case because when we look historically uh, within the New Testament, but also outside of the New Testament, kind of early church history, um, it's really several centuries after Jesus's life before we begin to see evidence of large church buildings, or really church buildings of any kind. Um, and so we really, with the birth of Christianity, we really have at least a couple of centuries where uh, the typical experience of Christians is gathering together in what we would describe as small groups. Yes, yes, those smaller gatherings. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say are some of the problems or some of the challenges with a lot of small groups today? Where do people need help in this area? Mm. Well, I think a lot of small group leaders Uh, feel fear about leading, Um, and I think the fear comes from putting expectations on themselves that aren't meant to be there. It's about uh, thinking that they need to be a, a seasoned pastor or a professional counselor or a real-time theologian and those kinds of things, and so that's that's certainly not the case. Um, You can be a small group leader and be a a co-learner with your group, and you can be present. You can not only care for your group members, but be cared for by your group members. And so I I think, to answer your question about problems in small groups, I do think a lot of it stems from uh, people leading, but leading from a place of fear Hmm. and wondering the whole time if they're even up for the task. And then a lot of people who could be leading, but feel maybe they're not qualified. And, And so I think there's definitely a a challenge with small group leadership kind of across the board. Yeah, would you say a small group leader, generally speaking, should be more of a teacher or more of a facilitator? I mean, when you talk mm-hmm. about small group leaders saying, I feel a little inadequate because I'm not a pastor, yeah. certainly. What is the role of a small group leader? What are you really doing when you're there? Is it more leader? Is it more pastor, uh, pastoral in, in nature? Is it more, you know, I just want to sit here and guide the discussion? Well, I think it. It depends on the type of small group ministry that you're a part of. I mean, that's one thing I would say. But I, but I think 
what's generally true is that there's no right type of leader. I mean, God made all of us differently, and and He works powerfully through small group leaders who are very charismatic and extroverted, and 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 He has certainly in my life, and I've seen it in small group leaders that I've I've had a chance to serve with. Um, he uses introverts and people who are quiet and people you wouldn't, you know, from outward appearances identify as some strong leader. But that's not what's really required. I, I think the role of a leader is to be present in your group, to be a co-learner with your group, to be prayerful, to be just faithful with it. I actually encourage in the book leaders not to over-prepare, hmm. uh, because when you over-prepare for your group discussions— it creates a teacher and student dynamic that is hard to get outside of. Right. And it also puts a lot of pressure on yourself. And so I think it's okay to be in your group and your group asks you a question and you don't know the answer and that's fine. And, and that's a moment to, to demonstrate for your group. It's okay to have questions you don't know the answer to. Here's how we're going to go find the answer. So you, it's okay to say, I don't know. This week, I'm going to go email my pastor. I'm going to email a local seminary professor. I'm going to go buy this book. Next time we meet, I'm going to come, and I'm going to have some more to say, but why don't we find the answer together? And, you know, that that's modeling for your group how it looks to grow and, and, and seek answers and find answers. And so uh, I don't think you have to view yourself as a small group leader, as some accomplished professional ministry leader. It's it's your present, you care for your group, and you're learning alongside of them. Yeah, that's good to know. So how, where would you begin in helping a small group leader to clarify his role and get started? Mm. Well, uh, to answer that, I, I would just kind of explain a little bit of the approach to the book, because I think the book that I wrote is basically an answer to that question. How would I counsel a small group leader to be prepared? And the 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 genesis of this book is, is I was in conversation with Bethany House Publisher, and they wanted to put out a book on small group leadership, something you can just hand to a small group leader to prepare them. And they said, they asked me how I would do it. Like, how would you write this book? Yeah. And basically my answer to them was, there are lots of resources out there that, that um, are, are good resources, they're effective, I've used them, that are designed to prepare small group leaders um, but they're very weighted toward the practical and the logistical. And mm-hmm. it can leave a potential small group leader with the impression that leading a small group well is mainly about logistics. If I just figure out the right frequency of meetings, if I get the right size of group roster, if I figure out who's making dinner, mm-hmm. child care, then basically this will be a cakewalk once I figure that stuff out. But in my experience, the deepest questions and most profound challenges in small groups are spiritual in nature. right? And so I think small group leaders need to have some level of theological or spiritual preparation. So that is how I structured the book. The first part, which is only 34 pages long, is basically a dashboard view of the logistical stuff. Here's, here's some practical tips you can employ to lead well. But then the back half of the book is walking through these spiritual questions that will continue to come up in the life of your group. What is God like? How does God view me? How do I grow spiritually? What is sin? How does it affect my life? Uh, you know, what should I think about people who don't share my beliefs? And so to answer your question, I, I think leaders should, should view themselves as trying to 
be prepared both logistically and spiritually while not putting too much of a burden on themselves. Yeah, that that's well said. And it, it kind of gets to the question of the goal of small groups. As you mentioned before, you can have different small groups do, doing different things. But for mm-hmm. example, in the church service, you have worship, you know, you're studying the word of God, you're hearing the word of God preached. But mm-hmm. I mean, even in Sunday school classes, you might have you know, an apologetics class, or you might have a book of the Bible that you're studying, and you might have a prayer group in your church, obviously. What Mm -hmm. should the small group do? Is it just a matter of the leader deciding this will be our focus and this is what we're doing? Is there freedom there Mm -hmm. to do that? Oh, I think there's lots of freedom. I mean, it kind of depends on how formal your group is in terms of its connection to the ministry of your church. And, And I say that in the introduction of my book, that I've written this book for people who want to lead groups or Bible studies, whether or not they're officially a part of a church ministry, because often with especially larger church ministries, they have a very particular type of small group that they're committed to. So, you know, our small groups are interest-based, or our small groups are Bible studies, or our small groups are sermon discussion groups, hmm. you know. Yeah. So, so if you're leading a small group in that sort of system, then you may not have as much leeway in what you choose to study. Uh, but in some other churches, you know, it's it's a little bit more up to the leader. And then, um, you know, you could choose a book of the Bible. You could, you know, read a book by a theologian. And, and I always, you know, advise people to seek out some advice on that. I mean, if you're a leader and you're not sure what you want to study, think about the topics that interest you. And, uh, you know, shoot an email to a pastor or a friend. Hey, any recommendations uh, on this subject matter? And, and just you know, do some prayer and, and diligence to find something. But I, I found it to be the case that a lot of small group leaders have guidance from their pastors on the kinds of things that they uh, should be studying. Um, yeah. So. yeah, yeah, that's really important for people to understand. And one of the things that you get into in your book as well, Ryan, is the biblical characteristics that a small group should have. And I want to talk about some of those as well as mm-hmm. getting into some of the things that you can talk about during your studies as a small group. Small Groups Made Easy is the name of the book. Pastor Ryan Lacosmo is with us, and we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. 
The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Ryan Lacasmo. He is lead pastor of Real Hope Community Church in the Houston area. We're discussing his book called Small Groups Made Easy, Practical and Biblical Starting Points to Lead Your Gathering. And I know a lot of listeners, Ryan, will be part of small groups or might be leaders of small groups. What about the biblical characteristics that a small group ought to have? What do you think is important? Well, I think certainly, um, you know, caring for each other, being in each other's lives, praying for each other, uh, making yourself aware of the joys and burdens that your fellow group members are experiencing. Um, so, so that, that kind of community aspect, I I think should be experienced. You know, I, I, I talk about in the book for, from the vantage point of leaders, but I think it's, it's true for just um, group members as well. You know, these groups should be effective and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. They should be effective in the sense of relationships are growing, the Bible is being studied, you know, spiritual growth is occurring, but also enjoyable in the sense that, you know, we're meant to enjoy Christian community. This is a gift. Right. This is not a burden. This is something that uh, Jesus wants for us. And yes. The Spirit wants to facilitate it. So, so walking with each other through the ups and downs of life in a very genuine way, being open with each other, asking for help when you need it, uh, giving help when it's needed, those are the kinds of things that I think are uh, what God wants for us. Right. So you have a real time of fellowship. You're walking away regardless of what the focus is in your particular small group. You're enjoying That's that right. koinonia to some extent. And yet, exactly. you know, as you point out, you many challenges can come up for small group leaders mm-hmm. that are personal in nature. This is, this is always the wild card, isn't it? Wherever we are in life, yes. you know, you have the, it's kind of like the, the, I think we can all relate to this when you're in the prayer group and that one woman who just goes <laughs> on and on and on. God bless her. It's wonderful, but it sounds like she's never going to end her prayer request. You know, pray for my uncle who has mm-hmm. gouge you know, it never ends. What do you do in that kind of situation when you have, you know, the small group leader is trying to move things along and and the people are just being a little quirky. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a whole chapter on that, kind of the personal challenges, talk about awkward silences and other (laughs) things to to deal with. But you're right. You know, I, I, the, um, I call them the monopolizers, you know, people who, who just kind of, um, everything just sort of, kind of always revolves back toward them and they talk longer than you prefer and kind of uh, can stifle the chemistry of the group or, or the fluidity of the conversation. And so, you know, I, 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 my advice is to put it as simple as possible. I encourage being proactive about that, like 
having a conversation with this person, but also gentleness. Good. You know, don't approach that person like, you know, hey, you're screwing up my group. Stop it. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, no, this is a person that Jesus loves and they're in your group and they may not be aware of how they're coming across. And if you approach it with that heart and you, you, you speak to them directly and gently about it early on, that's generally a good idea. And, and one of the tips I, I often give in those situations that I've used and it's worked is you, you can ask that person who's monopolizing conversations for help getting other people to speak up. Like you can kind of pull them aside after the group and say, hey, I really appreciate your insights. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, like we're, we're just not getting as much participation from everybody else. Hmm. Would you be, could you help me try to sort of foster that? And, you know, maybe we can ask some of the other group members some questions or ask their opinion on something. And when I've done that, it's worked every time because that person thinks, oh, great, like I'm helping you lead <laughs> and I, I'm helping you draw in these other people. So you're not even making yeah. it about them. You're not even saying, hey, you need to talk less. Yeah, that's and that's tactful. I mean, that's what you want is to be tactful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good idea. And, you know, one other aspect that kind of grabbed my attention when you were talking about the personal challenges that can come up in small groups is Mm -hmm. this aspect, again, of fellowship. What happens if you have a group that just isn't coalescing? You know, they're not really forming friendships. There are people they don't Mm -hmm. really have a lot in common. And, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, different backgrounds where you just, I don't know, they're just not melding. What do you do (laughs) in that? Yeah, they're not clicking. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing. You kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I think there are, there are situations where a group really isn't working, like arguments are happening, it's really become a, you know gossip and those sorts of things, and it may be the case with groups like that that they need to you know disband and join other groups or something. That, that might be the case. But my advice with, with other types of groups, um, I talk about the book as like slow-growing or no-growing friendships. They're just kind of you know, you're not becoming best friends with everybody in your group, but everyone is still coming. They're coming to the group. Uh, I actually advise not to be too worried about that. I think we can sometimes have kind of a low-voltage self-centeredness with our groups where we think, I'm going to get in this group, and it's going to be the most amazing group ever, and it's going to be exactly what I want it to be. And basically, if it's not that, then the group isn't for me, and it's not a good group. Hmm. And I just don't think that's true. I think the, the church is made up of people of very different personality types, and, and I think the Lord is honored in a group of people hanging together for the purpose of fellowship and caring for each other and studying God's Word, even if they don't personally click in the best way possible. You know, it, it's okay if everyone's not best friends, and, and the leader, too— that can be a terrible burden that the leader bears if they think a metric of success for their group is that everybody becomes best friends. That is actually rarely the case. <laughs> and if the leader puts it on them that they have to not only be, you know, I've got to be this theologian for my group and teach my group and everybody be better, you know, they must be best friends or the thing's failed. I mean, almost no group can live up to that level. And so I, I actually think that it's okay to have a group you know, as long as it's healthy, where everyone respects each other and is kind and cares for each other and is committed, it's okay if everyone doesn't click and people are different and they're not best friends. You know, that that's okay. I don't think that means you just jump ship or just ban the group necessarily. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's true. And and when you're talking about slow growing friendships, sometimes you just have to give it time. You know, exactly. You might not click immediately, but there might be an experience you have down the road, and all of a sudden you yeah. have a lot in common with that guy you didn't like so much last week. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And again, trying to think less self centeredly, like God might want to use you in that person's life six months from now. Yes. Not yes. like, what am I getting out of this relationship? Yeah. But what if part of God's purpose is six months from now, this person who I don't particularly like is going to have, you know, a death in the family or lose their job or something. And what they go through is going to be eerily similar to something I've walked through and God's positioned me in their life. And, and I think, you know, we just need to be aware of our, of, of that form of self-centeredness of, of just thinking the group is here for me and what I want. It's well, that partly, but also God has you there for a reason, uh, maybe for somebody else. Excellent point. And you, you have some really good Bible studies in here, Ryan, in your book that you help these leaders go through the discussions and, and kind of guide the small group. And I think it's important in each of these topics that you've suggested on sin or on grace or what God is mm-hmm. like, you have a really good beginning, I think, when you're saying you got to have some social interaction to get going, you know, because that also can can make a difference in how you relate to people if you do something a little bit fun to try to break the ice somewhat. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's true. You know, it's, I think, a a healthy group, you know, they want to know each other and they want to, you know, have fun. They want to talk about their lives. and, and, And when you have that relational foundation, when you then go into a Bible study or a book discussion or whatever it might be, there's a rapport that, you know, there's a, there's a unity there. You're starting from that place as you engage with God's Word. And so, you know, people may express opinions about the Bible or about a current event or something that you don't like, that you don't agree with in the context of the study and the discussion. Mm-hmm. But if the relationship is there, if you've done the social part of it, then you are positioned to, as Paul put it, bear with each other, mm-hmm. you know, forgive yes. one another. Yes. Uh, because the re- you care about that person. Yes. And so it, it provides a framework to really engage in a rich way with his word. Yeah, I agree with that because I, I think it is important for people to just be able to get to know one another and to understand that just because one person might have more knowledge of the Bible than another, it doesn't mean that you can't relate to that person and grow together and mature exactly. together as Christians. And that I, I would say fundamentally, that's probably the end goal of any small group, regardless of what you're studying or what you're doing in that particular context. Yeah. Well, it's right. really a helpful resource. It's called Small Groups Made Easy, Practical and Biblical Starting Points to Lead Your Gathering by Pastor Ryan Lacasmo. And Ryan, so good to have you here. I'm really appreciative of what you've written, and I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Great to have you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us here on Janet Mefford today. We've come to the end of another broadcast, but we hope to have you back next time. God bless you, and we will see you then.